You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be the driver in their own lives for the life and stories of black women who drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant and executive coach and a leadership facilitator working with people and organizations to live their lives by design and not default. Welcome back from a brief one week's break. I was traveling over the last couple of weeks in London and Paris and so I took a week out and I'm also hasn't stopped me from interviewing those women for you though. I have some amazing women lined up for this coming season. So I'm I'm truly excited about the women that I'm interviewing right now. And I just want to thank you all again for listening. I am getting your messages. I'm getting your notes, reading the reviews and loving that you're getting a lot from it, that you're seeing things for yourself that you can apply. You're having moments of insight that are so powerful that you are getting into action. So all power to you for doing that and thanks to the women who have inspired you to do that my guests who've been on the show so far if you're loving the show like that it's really important to head over to iTunes get onto the reviews page and then rate and review the show it that helps tremendously in growing the audience and getting it out to more people share it with your friends, share it with other women who are going through similar challenges and can be inspired by the success of other women that have been featured on the show. If you want to get in contact with me, you can always contact me on my website. You can leave messages there on my website as well. And remember to download my free ebook on how to be a woman with drive that's available for you. I want to introduce Brianna Clark, who is my guest this week. Brianna is a former broadcast journalist who really broke racial and gender barriers in the time that she was um, in broadcasting. You know, in 1991, she left broadcasting, but she ended her television career as the first African-American female journalist at the CBS affiliate in Portland, Oregon. She is now a practicing successful lawyer an author. She published her first book in 2016, which is a novel called Cracked, which is about a young woman's journey through recovery from cocaine addiction. She is currently writing her second novel called Twisted, which is a story about racism set in Baltimore, Maryland, on the eve of the election of Barack Obama. Clark, in this interview, really shares a very painful personal journey and how her successful career has run in parallel to that and has emerged in spite of what has some really tragic circumstances really. I think this is the most moved I've been in an interview. I felt very privileged to have had this time with Brianna and for her to share her story that is so powerful and so inspiring. I am sure that you will be inspired and moved by her too. So I give you Brianna. Brianna, thank you so much for like being willing to be a guest on She's Got Drive at this week's episode. 
I am very honored to be on your show. Thank you. I'm excited about, I'm always excited about my guests. And what I'm excited about speaking to you about is that your journey has been, I want to say, it sounds like when I've read about, and we've had a conversation before, quite a, a, a challenging journey in, with, the, with the personal and the professional. And, and, you, and you, hear, you stand here really in your power and successful today. And I want us to kind of get into that. Like, how did you go through what you've gone through and be standing strong today? Ah, that's my <laughs> assessment. It's so funny. And I'm assessing from the outside and I'm always mindful of that too. I've always been a fighter and I've had to fight my entire life. I was given a set of ugly circumstances and I have always fought out of my ugly circumstances. I believe you have to have courage, you have to believe in yourself, and you have to take action. Right. I think that's simply it. And, you know, I think you have to be able to encourage yourself, and you have to be able to calm and soothe yourself. Mm. And I think I've learned that from a very early age. Right. So encourage yourself and calm and soothe yourself. And we're going to get into what some of those challenges that you've had, but they they it's so it's it's what I'm it says what I'm trying to what I'm struggling with is speaking about is or naming is the uniqueness of your ability to do both to in, the encourage and the calm because there, there is a around you there is a the word that comes up is serenity and mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so you know, that, yeah. I, I, I've been living my journey. I have always believed, I'm not a religious person, mm-hmm. but I am a spiritual person. And I've always believed that there was a purpose for my life. And at times, it didn't seem to be very clear. Right. And it didn't seem to be what I wanted. But in retrospect, I've seen that there has always been a plan for me. And it was about inspiring other women, other people to go beyond what society, their parents, or anyone tells them about who they are and what they should do. I knew that from a very early age. So, yeah, so this is great. So how, how, how old were you when you, when you started to see that for yourself and started to make sense of your life in that way? Well, the very first crazy memory I have of myself was me crying at five years old. And I wasn't sure what I was crying about, but I was talking to God when I was five. And I don't remember what I was saying, but I remember weeping bitterly mm-hmm. and that I knew that whatever was happening to me at five, that it was going to be okay. So that's my first memory of a dialogue with a higher power was when I was five. Now, I might say that this might have been me copying a very religious grandmother and not knowing what I was doing, Mm -hmm. but I distinctly remember that there was a connection between me and whoever this higher power was called God, and I knew that I would always be okay. Wow. That's incredible. And then that has, and, and that knowing has been with you the whole time? 
Yes. Uh, I've been through some traumatic events, you know, through my early childhood. Uh, I, you know, the first time Child Protective Services investigated my family, I was nine years old. Mm. And like most children, you are told to lie because the consequences are devastating for parents. Mm-hmm. And you really want to still love your parents and you hope that they will love you after you've lied for them. In my case, that didn't work out so well. But I knew from an early age that I was going to have challenges and I kept fighting back. Right, right. And so how did that lead to you choosing your path in terms of your professional path? What was well, your that trajectory to that place? Well, very interestingly, um, I moved to California when I was 14 years old, going on 15 years old. I think that my parents had, quote, had it with me and I had had it with them. And an aunt in California decided to uh, keep me and she became my guardian. Well, when I went to California from my private school in Chevy Chase, Maryland, I had exceeded California's requirements for high school. And all that I needed to do was take a year of PE for one year and take one advanced English class. And therefore, at 16 years old, I was eligible to graduate from the California school system. Well, that was problematic for my parents because they did not want me to graduate at 16 and go to college. As a result of that, one of my high school counselors, and I'll never forget her name, Mrs. Freeland, she got an attorney for me and filed a lawsuit against my parents. And my brilliant 25-year-old lawyer decided that he was not going to bring up any of the past abuse of my parents, but instead argue for my right to an education. And we won. And I was 16 years old. And the following year, I went to college at a junior college uh, near Mountain View, California. And I never forgot the power of the law and the power of going into that courtroom and somebody saying, you are emancipated. And I was freed from my parents, at least legally, for the rest of my life. So, Yeah. And then what impact did that have on you, that? feeling of emancipation because you've had we, you know we didn't get into this but you, it, as you said you named it an abusive relationship with your parents so what does it what did it feel like what's the impact on you of having that emancipation uh like a child in a small boat on the ocean I was just 16 years old yeah. I had to live on my own I had to get a car get a job go to college, pay for my college expenses. Then I was 16. For a lot of my early life, I felt rudderless and without any role models or adult supervision. And if I had had a role model, someone close to me, a mentor, it might have saved me years from the time I did get to go on TV and to become a lawyer now an author and public speaker. Mm. The journey has been long, but I suppose it also took me finding my own grace, finding my own sense of self, which I feel at this age, which is 60, I have 
come six decades and I know who I am. I feel very moved by your story and present to the courage that it's taken over these decades to be where you are. I'm not just trying to, I'm trying to figure out why else I'm so moved by that, but I am, you know, I just, I, I think that, I think that many people relate to my story because I wasn't an overnight excess success. Mm -hmm. I worked very hard. I had lots of challenges. Um, I got lost along the way many times off the path and had to self-correct. And I think for anybody at any time of their lives who's gotten off their path, my story is a story that it's possible to get back on your path and continue to move forward. Right. So yes. my story is a story of hope. Yes, it really is. It really is. So let's get into uh, more of the detail of the story. You know, so you, you left, you were at college at the age of 16. And what happened? Well, at 16, I was in college. And because I look the way I do, you know, I'm an exotic mix of many races. And I was also very naive and had no sense of values or whatever. And I think I need to say that the abuse, my father raped me when I was 12 years old and continued an abusive sexual relationship until I was about 15. And so my sense of sex, values, and men were very confused. I had had no therapy until my third year when I transferred to UCLA when I was 19. And so there was this odd sense of freedom without any governor or control. So I was a wild, drinking, but studying student when I was 17 to 19. Um, I was out of control and yet in control. And the thing that kept me in control was school because I'd always been a really good student. So wildness meshed with a person who had a, a almost four point uh, GPA. Mm -hmm. So it was a contradiction, and I think that there are many aspects of my life that are contradictory, yeah. but that was one of them. So, and I met a series of older men that I don't want to say they took advantage of me, nobody lured me, but I don't know whether I would have gone out with a 17 year old if I was in my 40s. You know, right? I don't right. know whether, yeah, and I certainly wouldn't do it today. I would never do it because I understand how young a 17, 18, 19, 20 year old person is, but not everybody has my sense of values. And there were a number of men who came into my life and they affected how I saw the world and how I was treated in the world. Right. So I went out with a series of wealthy older men. And I continued to do that until I guess I grew up and I found them too old. Right. <laughs> so. And so how did you start into your, you know, tell us how you got into your work, you know, how you, you chose your work, you know, because you, you, your first work was in the broadcasting space. Is that correct? Is it, well, or? yes, it, it was. So 
I went to UCLA, which was just another wild situation. I was a sorority girl. I was the first member, African-American member of the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority in Los Angeles, California at UCLA. Now, I did that because I needed a great place to live cheaply, and that was how I did it. And while I was there, there was a lot of opportunity coming from a sorority, from past sorority members. Mm -hmm. And I was given an opportunity to work on the Dick Clark show, which I did. And I worked for Dick Clark for a number of years. And as a result of working for Dick Clark, I had opened a door to the entertainment industry that was very broad, big, and very connected. Mm -hmm. So what I started first doing, because I'm a writer by heart, mm -hmm. I started working for a major producer named Martin Elephant, who did a movie called Dog Day Afternoon and another one called An Officer and a Gentleman. Mm -hmm. Don't know what Martin's doing now. But so I started off working for a top producer, which led me to another major producer. And after working with one of the top people in all of the history of television, and his name is Peter Anthony Andrews, who was a senior executive vice president for NBC, my world opened. And at the same time, I realized that I would never get the kind of recognition and credibility unless I had an advanced degree. And so I first did 10 years or almost 10 years of television. And then I decided that I needed to go to law school. And I did. Wow. Okay. So what now? Why the switch? Because that's like, you sounds like you're on this trajectory of um, success in the entertainment space. And then here you are switching to, to do law. What was it that uh, attention deficit disorder. Um, I just felt that I wanted to do more than be in the entertainment industry. Okay. I felt that I needed to make a difference and I couldn't make a difference, you know, reporting the news. I could only report what I saw and that was filtered by the news station. It was filtered and filtered and filtered. And there was something about me that needed to support people who didn't have a voice, people who weren't being chased after to get on the news. And I felt that particularly the news media was not open to really caring about people. I'd started out as a social worker and ended up being an English literature major who went into broadcast, who really has the heart of a social activist. Right. And I thought that law would make a difference, at least give me the tools to be able to affect change. I probably should be a politician, except I can't stand politics. But <laughs> <laughs> it, everything I've done was to make a difference, to help people to be a teacher. And the larger the platform that I could get to teach people about really believing in themselves mm -hmm. was what led me. So do, do you, I'm, I'm curious as to whether that experience as well as the 16 year old of having your 25 year old lawyer emancipate you and that experience, did that have anything to do with the choice around law? I mean, you, there were plus sides and minuses clearly to that experience, but 
Did that, did that have anything of to course. do with it? Of course. I've, I've never forgotten that story. And I think it probably was the most important aspect of where I am today because I don't know what would have happened. The argument that we put forth to the court that day was, at the time, an adult was 21 years old. I was 16. Unless I was emancipated, I would have to wait five years to go to college. What would have happened to me in those five years? Right. You know, I might have given up. But because of that young man who never charged me a dime, I don't know how he was ever paid or who paid him or how, how that happened, but I became emancipated and had an opportunity to design my own life. And I, I couldn't forget that. Mm. The other thing I think that was also distressing to me was the fact that I had a brother who was now deceased. He died at 34 years old. And he too had been the severe victim of my parents and their pathology. And I wanted to help him. And I found out that he had been incarcerated and I wanted to do something to make a difference in the legal, the penal system. Unfortunately, I was not able to save my brother, although I tried. Mm. I tried very hard. So there were those things. And last but not least, uh, I, my mother wanted me to be a lawyer um, for all bad reasons, but she wanted me to be a lawyer. And Somewhere in my heart, I have always wanted my mother to approve of me, as every child does. Right. I realize that that is kind of a lost hope at this point. Mm -hmm. But I think somewhere driven by all of those things, I entered law school, and here I am. Yeah. yeah. So your experience of law school was what? Well... My experience of law school, actually law school was fun but tiring. Education is always going to be fun for me. I love information. I love knowledge. It's probably the thing I seek the most. It was challenging because I was with everybody else who had graduated number one in their class. And I was at the University of Washington, which at that time was the top IP school in the country. That's uh, intellectual property school in the country. Right. So I was with all the smart, super nerd people, you know, some of which who are now legal counsel for Google and other large IP uh, companies. I was interested in copyright, the old law. And um, so I got to do what I wanted to do uh, in law school. I did mostly trial advocacy, which is prepare to be a litigator, which is what I am today. Mm -hmm. And I also looked at the arts and the relationship between the copyright law and arts and media, which I had come from. So it was a positive experience. And uh, I graduated on time, despite the fact having a two-year-old and a four-year-old and being a single mother. So, wow. So there's lots, there's lots happening there. There's so much. And, um, and then has it been, has your career been as a lawyer? You know, what's it, has it, has well, it, yeah. Well, I, I, I knew early on that I was not going to be a big firm kind of person. I didn't do the politics well. You know, I was a summer associate at a very large prestigious firm. And I would say I generally failed because I had a huge group of people who hated me and a huge group of people who loved me. 
And it's usually the case, you know, the group that hates, the group that loves me. And I just, the politics were just too uh, fine. And I missed a lot of cues. I missed a lot of stuff. So I knew that I was not going to make it into the private world of law. So I opened my own practice with a colleague right after law school. And I struggled. And it was right at the beginning of opening my law practice with a huge case, which I got simply because I knew somebody and they believed in me. They believed in my skills. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of that large case, I also met the person who introduced me to crack cocaine and which I became a crack cocaine addict within the first 90 days of my law practice. Wow. So, yeah. So there's, there's, there's always this large something coming in. There's always been a fight between good and evil for me. Yes. So. Really? It, it, yes. Really? It's been huge. It, it's like you're living a number of lives. Does yes. That make, it, yeah. It feels like yes. you, you're living a number of lives in, in your lifetime. Yeah, there's always the evil versus the good uh, fighting strongly. I've always felt that, that, mm. you know, I could have gone the wrong way, but there's something about me. I think some belief in a higher power that leads me forward to the right and to the light. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there's a struggle. And the long five ago, year old that you spoke about, that, you know, yeah. you as a five year old, like carrying you. Yes. That, that, yes. that seeing that you had at five. Yeah. Yes. And that I still do. And that yeah. I still do. That, that, that moves me forward. That heads me towards the light. That keeps me going when anything intervenes. And I now know that no matter what happens, I'm capable. Yes. And that's, that's the, the gift at the end of 60 years around the planet is I've, had so much happen to me that I know that I can overcome any difficulty and any obstacle. And so there's a sense of invincibility, not stupidly, but a sense mm. of no matter what happens, I'll deal with it. It might be painful. It might right. be costly, but I'll deal with it. Right. So, so how long, how long were you addicted to crack? And then how did you get out of that? Many people don't come out. Out. That's true. I, I, once again, I'm going to say it's, it's a higher power thing. Um, I became an addict with a, a trust fund baby. So who had access to literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you could buy as much crack that you could actually use until you died, which is exactly what happened to him. He, quote, died of a heart attack, but he had worn out his heart from using, you know, crack for decades. Right. So um, I got to go down really fast because I had a $1,000 a day crack cocaine habit. And at the end of 11 weeks, I was near death as one could be. 11 weeks with right. this man who had been in and out of drug rehab for five times and had failed. I didn't know that when I met him, you know, charming, wealthy, fun, and 
just went on an 11 week drug ride through very expensive hotels, you know, clothes, jewelry. It was sort of a fantasy, the last hurrah Mm -hmm. um, for him and um, sort of a escape out of the years of drudgery of law school and being a single mother and being poor. So 11 weeks, we probably spent a couple hundred thousand dollars doing those 11 weeks. I know that I personally wrote checks for $75,000, which all turned out to be bad. I could have gone to jail. And um, I knew that I was going to die. And so I looked at a handful of pills and said, if I take these pills and I end up dead, Does that mean that I've committed suicide or does that mean that it was accidental? When you're thinking thoughts like that, you're in a pretty bad place. But I did take those pills and I did wake up. And when I did wake up, I realized that I had been given an opportunity. And so I did fall upon my knees. I did pray. And I said, God, if you cure me of this crack cocaine addiction, I will always be yours. And from that moment, I have never been uh, attracted, thought of, or whatever about crack, but I had given my promise and here I am today. Mm. So. Wow. And you are here. And I am here. And you are here. And so how did you, so you had started your practice, you had that moment of prayer, and then how did you actually physically become well enough to get back into your, your law practice? Well, it took a year. It took a year. And during that year, I worked as a salesperson in a store owned by a woman who was a recovering alcoholic a very wealthy woman who owned a large nationwide uh, chain of stores. And uh, she had opened a high-end discount boutique in Bellevue, the town that I lived in. And I had met her and her husband at an AA meeting. They hired me to work in this store. And during that year, I went to uh, anti-relapse programs. I did everything I could because... At the end of my recovery, I had hoped to regain the custody of my children. I never did, but I kept holding on in hope that someday that they would return. They have not yet. I have still not given up hope, but it did take that long journey of doing something. You know, I think I got paid eight fifty an hour at that mm-hmm. store, but I made it somehow. I made it. I took that money and got myself a little apartment and kept going. Um, I had a trial at the end of that year, which of course I couldn't afford an attorney. So I was my own representative in my custody trial for my kids and I lost. And, um, but that's how I entered, re-entered the practice of law. They declared because they had to, they, you know, I was removed or suspended from the practice for a year. And then when the trial date came, the opposing counsel said, well, she can't represent herself. She's not a 
lawyer. She is suspended by the state of Washington, so she can't act on her own behalf. Of course, I argued I can, as a private individual, represent myself. But then the judge ordered, oh, as of this day, her suspension in the state of Washington for medical reasons is now over and she can defend herself. And so I did. And for three days or however long that trial took, I defended myself and I lost. But boy, did I give them a run for their money. But I lost and my then ex-husband did everything he could to keep those kids away from me. It took a very long battle And finally, years later, when the kids were suffering from all of this therapy and reunification and all of this stuff, a therapist said, you need to let them go. This fight between your husband and yourself is destroying your children. One of you has to give up. And I said, well, why don't you ask him to give up? He's the one that's keeping the kids away from me. And she said, because you're the more reasonable one. And I said, fine. A year later, I moved to Europe because it just broke my heart Mm. not to be able to have the even hope of seeing my kids and looking for them on every street corner in Seattle. So I moved away to heal my very ragged heart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see. So painful even today, of course. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm. Yes. Mm. The loss of one's children is never easy. Mm. Yeah. But they're alive. They're well. Mm. Um, I get snap snippets of them on Facebook and things like that, but I don't have a relationship with them. And that's been the price of my addiction, the mm. highest, most costly price. So, yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. Breathe for a second. Yes. So then you're in your way and you you focus on rebuilding your professional life. And I did. Yeah. And I did. And I came back smashingly successful. You know, there's a part of me that says, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Or throw me to the wolves, I'll come back leading the pack. That's probably a better example of who I am as a persona. So, yeah, I became a very successful attorney in Seattle. And um, then 9-11 happened in 2001. And I said to myself, the world could end at any point. You better start living your dreams. I sold or closed my practice got rid of everything in this beautiful, stunning Seattle condo that I owned with my then ex-husband or my then husband who became my ex-husband. And I moved to Europe and I began writing the novel that finally got published in 2016 and in a small press. But I knew that I had to tell this drug story and I also knew that I needed to return, quote, to the scene of the crime, which is back to the Washington, D.C. area for my family. I had to see what had happened during the intervening years. So I came back with the hope to bring my family together. Mm. And it was a promise I made my brother 
who died in 1999. So I came back in 2003 to see what this family of mine was doing. And of course they were a mess and I worked very hard to get them out of all kinds of tax and financial things, hoping that once again, that if I was good enough that they would love me and I would become the beloved child. And for a short moment I was, but it was all layered under the fact that nobody was going to talk about my abuse, you know? So, um, and ultimately, of course, it all fell apart. So how do you, given this family experience, given your experience, given your life experience, how do you be successful as a lawyer? How do you be successful when you're a journalist? How do you, what is it? My drive, my desire to do what I say that I'm going to do, my desire to have the life that I want and choose to have, I can't let the circumstances of my life dictate my life. The ones that I can change, I can change. The ones that I can't, I accept. It's the prayer of all addicts, you know, to change the things I can and accept the things I can't. And that has followed me through. And there's a lot of stuff that I can change, including how I react and what I do about the circumstances in my life. And that is a personal conversation that I have every day. Who are you going to be in the face of the world's insanity and mm. unkindness and inhumanity? Who are you going to be? So what's the answer that you give yourself? That I must do the right thing, that I must do what's ethically and morally, morally responsible for me. So I have to do what I believe to be right, not what anyone else thinks is right. I've always taken the road less traveled. What's the work that's your purpose-driven work? You know, let's come back to your, the, book that, the books that you've written and um, your speaking as well. I want us to kind of spend some time in, in, in that space. Well, that is my work. My work is a teacher and a, a teacher by telling tales and telling tales that illuminate people's uh, the parts where people don't want to see about themselves. You know, I write about characters that are very flawed, very human uh, characters mm -hmm. who find themselves in the tale. And what I hope is, is that the reader in reading my tales, my stories will find themselves and see themselves in my character or see themselves completely different than my character and then go, wow, I'm so glad I'm not her mm. or whatever, whatever they say. I'm a teacher at heart. I don't want to work in a classroom. I want to talk to people about my experiences and to give them the opportunity to map themselves on my experience, whatever their experience is, right. and to find with them the, inside themselves the belief in themselves and the ability to take the next right step. So that's that's my passion. It has to be fueled by something. So you know, my legal career has fueled my my passion. I also love art, and I support a lot of artists. My home is filled with art. I love the process of creation. I think it's an act of faith. So that's my, my true journey. I am a terrific lawyer. I have been a great litigator. It has given me a lifestyle that I might not have otherwise had. Right. But it's also demanding. 
And so when I made the decision to become a writer, full-time public speaker, I needed a career that would let me go and do what I needed to do and also give me the resources to do so. And this particular job that I'm doing now allows me to do that. Right. And so that's really wonderful about you've really designed your life. You already, you know, you've, you've looked at what's going to serve you financially to support the creative outlet that you have for your writing that allows you to go out and has the flexibility to go out and do the public speaking that, and then who knows where, you know, as that grows, but you are in design, you have the, what we call the portfolio lifestyle in terms of your work, right? Yes, I did. I have designed my life. It's taken a long time to do this, but I have designed it. I have figured it out. Um, and it's taken a while. And that's the thing that I also want to tell anybody. It does take time to figure out how to do this dance called life. Mm. And if you keep observing and keep looking at what you want, and if you follow your passion, then you will figure it out because persistence pays off. It does. So, but what is it about, you know, one of the questions I always ask my guests is, what is it about you that has had you succeed? You know, we've touched on a number of things here, as you shared, but what do you think it is about you that has you continually succeed, that has you create your life, that has you not be given by your circumstances? Because often people are stopped by they have a vision for what they want to do, they want to write a book, they never write a book, you know? They want to be do speaking, they don't do that. They, you know, whatever it is, they are stopped by their circumstances or there are people who have had your circumstances, are living your circumstances in terms of your past, the challenges of your past and your family is pathology, and they are not designing their lives. So what is it about you? My unwillingness to lose, <laughs> my unwillingness to not do what I said I was going to do, my understanding that this is my only life, this is not the test life, my days are running short, I could die at any time, I must, I guess I'm driven by fear, the fear of failure drives me madly, mm. so um, and I'm a terrible loser, I'm not so sure I'm a gracious winner, but I'm a terrible loser. <laughs> so I, I, I'm driven by my own demons of not to fail, to succeed. And there's a little bit of I'll show you. Mm-hmm. You can't stop me. I think that's that little fighter in me that got mixed with a heavy dose of a big heart. And um, just my unwillingness not to give up, right. you know. Right. So you just. You keep keep going. going, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going. What would you, so let's, I want us to take you back to the, if you had to speak to the 16-year-old Brianna back then, what is it that you would tell her with all the wisdom that you have today? Wow, the 16-year-old Brianna, believe in yourself, follow your heart, plan it out carefully. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. You dream and you figure it out. That's what I would tell her and that you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Don't give up. So, Brianna, what are you working on now? What's your next thing? What's the thing that you want to 
do next. Okay. Well, my next thing is the second book, which is entitled Twisted. And it is a look at racism in Baltimore. It's a Baltimore city book. It's about a wealthy African-American family, a family that has a fourth generation doctor, a African-American woman who inherits a horse farm. Baltimore is the second leg of the Preakness, uh, which is the world of racing in the United States. So there's a whole horse history here, a forgotten history of African-Americans in the thoroughbred racing industry, as well as a look at what happened to those four million slaves freed after the Civil War and how they became educated. So Twisted is my next book, which I'm hoping to win a literary award so I can stay home and write. But if not, I'll do it anyway. And the book that was released last year is a book called Cracked. And it is the story of a single female lawyer like myself on her journey through recovery of crack cocaine and a look at the history that led to her addiction. Right now in the field of alcohol and drug addiction, we now know that the number one issue in curing addiction is to deal with early childhood trauma. I speak to any organization that wants to hear about my journey from a crack addict to who I am today Mm. and the insights that I've learned. I'm open and available to speak to any group that's willing to have me because I think this message is important. Right now in this country, we are facing an opioid addiction issue, and much of that is stemming from personal pain, psychological pain, and we must deal with it or we will have a nation of crippled people and we can't have that. Yes. So So where can people get hold of your books? So Twisted isn't out yet. Cracked is out yet, is out, came out, but Twisted isn't out yet. That's correct, isn't it? Right. I'm hoping that uh, Twisted will come out in 2018 and uh, Cracked is on Amazon. Okay. Um, it's a dark cover with smoke rising. <laughs> and you need to find it by my name, Brianna S. Clark, because there's 14 other books with the word Cracked in it. But um, I think it's a beautifully written, powerful look at the power of therapy and a person's resilience to recover. Right. Well, I will put the link to your book in the show notes so they'll be able to find it there. And then if someone wanted to get hold of you, how would they get hold of you? They can reach me at, to my email, which is the Clark Group, Fine Arts at Gmail. Or they can leave a note on my website, which is BriannaSClark.com. And um, I'm easy to find. Brianna S. Clark Attorney. Brianna S. Clark, you got to get the S though. You can find me fairly easily. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and the Bar Association knows where I am. (laughs) Brianna, thank you so much for your powerful sharing of your story. You know, I just, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. Yes. And I thank you. I thank you because. The more people, the more women who hear this story, the more 
hope that they will have, the more inspired they will be to take that step, to get out of the box that someone has placed them in, to move forward and to live their only life, this one. So I thank you for being an opportunity to share my story and perhaps impact the life of one other person. Mm. So um, I thank you. I hope that you have been inspired to shift gears in your own life. You can hear in this interview with Brianna that she really demonstrates how she has reinvented herself, really created her life over and over again, showing resilience and just sheer grit and determination. Um, I think that's what so much moved me. So much has really moved me, but the fact that she comes back, the fact that she keeps moving, keeps going, and is really committed to fulfilling her purpose is testament to me of what is truly possible. And I hope that if you are someone who is dealing with the most toughest circumstances that you get, that it's possible to create your life and to be the success that you want to be through this interview with Brianna. You know that I would love to hear from you. Please reach out, get in contact, let me know what you're getting from this interview with Brianna, what you're getting from this interview, She's Got Drive. And you can always do that on the Facebook page, on the She's Got Drive Facebook page, by reaching out to me on Shirley McAlpine Consulting on Instagram, by sending me a message through my website. Um, There's all ways of being in contact, so please be in contact and let me know what you're getting. She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Voltolina. The music is by the awesome band Blonde. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, go well and stay well.